namaste and uh, have a good yes please please go ahead namaste good evening welcome to indic chat the weekly chat program by the indic academy to introduce the works of indic writers today we have with us shri gautam chikarmani author of tunnel of varanavat the first of his mahabharata reimagined series gautam chikarmani is a vice president at the observer research foundation and a director at care india he has also served in leadership positions at hindustan times the indian express the financial express and the outlook group he has also served as a director and vice chairman at financial planning standards board india he was a jefferson fellow at the east west center in his own words gautam chikarmani is a writer exploring the worlds of economics politics and the mahabharata he has also authored the disruptor arvind kejriwal and the audacious rise of the aam aadmi and five decades of pk both published by rupa we meet him on indic chat today celebrating one year of tunnel of varanavat gautam ji a very warm welcome to indic chat how has the journey been one year after launching varanavat thank you sai uh, it's a pleasure to be here and talking to a highly aware and educated group of people in the sense that these are i imagine largely people who would have engaged with the mahabharat or our indian epics in some form or the other several of them are authors themselves like you and others are interested in this great text which uh, to borrow from vishwa adaluri who taught us uh, in a four day workshop in delhi last month the textual universe of the world which is the mahabharat is the universe and the universe is the mahabharat once again thank you very much hari ji it's a pleasure and a privilege to be here the journey uh, the first one year that i call it's it's actually only just a calendar year journey the mahabharat being 5000 years old what is 12 months in in that journey my small contribution to this great literature this great work even so i think more than the the between the time of publication and its and now more than that it is what mahabharat does to you internally in your mind in your heart in your soul that is the more important journey and uh, um, if you see my protagonist badri the, the story is three journeys one is the the journey from hastinapur to varanavat which is the physical journey the second journey is to seek his love urvashi at varanavat has left him and has gone there and the third journey is the journey of his consciousness from that of a warrior to one of a teacher a thinker a sage a rishi these are the three journeys that i describe in my book which in turn inform me and my personal journeys into the mahabharat thank you thank you so much uh, before i go to the next uh, question could i request everyone to mute their audios uh, mute their microphones uh, we'll be taking questions from the audience uh, at the later half of the session do please type out your questions on the chat window and uh, we'll be coming back to them and revisiting the questions from time to time so gautam ji uh, you shared about your personal connection with the great epic mahabharata uh, we also heard that uh, maharshi aurobindo's reinterpretations and teachings influence your thought process in writing the tunnel of varanavat is there something about uh, the re reinterpretation that you want to share with all of us yes so uh, in, in the journey of the mahabharat i have two gurus one is vedavyas who is the composer of the mahabharat the other is sri aurobindo who is the composer of future spirituality the greatest gurus you can get thank you <laughs> and so what i try to do in my work is take the story of vedavyas delve deep into it 
in several ways. For instance, uh, I'm sure you know that Badri as a, as a person does not exist in this, in Vedavyasa's Mahabharata. He's only referred to as a minor and has been dismissed in six verses. That's it. It's over. He doesn't even have a name. To give him breath, flesh, blood, life, ambition, frustrations, failures and successes, I created this journey. So that is the journey of from Hastinapur to Varnavat, where he goes and saves the Pandavas, as everybody knows. This is no, uh, I'm not trying to give up, it's not a spoiler, so to speak. But in that, so this is the, our ancient Indian history, Indian Itihas, no, let's not call it history, Itihas. It is who India is, what India is, the values, the dharma, the karma that it goes through. But the spirituality, which is the movement of consciousness, has, in my opinion, and this is after reading several gurus, been only best expressed by Sri Aurobindo, which is what he says is that we are not here to uh, attain moksha, which is where most of the other philosophies end, including the Mahabharata. He says after the moksha, you need to bring the divinity down and divinize matter itself. You have to divinize man. You have to divinize earth. That's what will complete the entire spiritual cycle that has been talked about. When I mix these two, the, the product of my books, uh, you will find in my books, these two expressions. Ancient India through the, through the eyes of Vedvyas, future spirituality through the work of Sri Aurobindo. That's very interesting. So you found, uh, because when I think back and see Badri, uh, for, that, for those six verses, I think he held the future of India in his hands. That so, is true. And he was left uh, uncelebrated. <laughs> so it was just shudder to, to think, had he failed, what would have been the consequences? Right? So in, how did you negotiate, you know, space for Badri's story in a, such a dense narrative like Mahabharata? Because Mahabharata is that kind of an epic where even the mentioned characters, we feel don't get the space due to them. But now you've given a name to the minor and you know, negotiated space and story for the, his whole world out there. So how, was, how did you go about the process and how was the experience? So uh, I don't know Sanskrit, though I do plan to start learning it at some point. So there was no point me translating the Mahabharat like Vivek Debroy has done so beautifully last, over the last four or five years. The other thing was to rewrite the Mahabharat, but that too has been done very well by several other people. I wanted to bring a new freshness to this great literature, contemporize it, make it more relevant to the current reader. But I also wanted to talk about characters that did not exist or were glossed over, like this minor who is such an important person in the Mahabharata. And like you rightly said, without him, there would be no Pandavas and hence no Mahabharata. And yet this minor is dismissed in six verses. So I began to search for such characters. I call them the subaltern. Technically subaltern is the exploited characters, which I, but I don't want to get into that debate right now. But all the characters who were there in the book and were my Mahabharata will, be, will not be talking about so much. Or at least the protagonists in my Mahabharat will not be Arjun and Duryodhan and Dhritarashtra and Karna. But they will be these minor characters or even invisible characters who existed or were dismissed by sideline or who didn't have much of a place. It is to, through their lives, through their eyes, through their aspirations, how they looked at the kings and the queens of the world then of that time, that I will be telling you this story. I'm already halfway through my next book, which is another subaltern uh, character. But I believe that there is no point writing about the story anymore from the kings and the queens point of view. People have done that already, notably K. N. Munshi uh, for, in the Bharatiya Bhavan in his series Krishnavatar. It is to bring this newness, this fresh approach, and therefore give me, uh, let us say, the literary freeway to experiment with characters and so on, that I have chosen this path, which is part, the path of the subaltern. Yeah. So coming back to the subaltern topic, uh, you know, I do want to name a couple of books that I have read, but 
but a lot of subaltern literature uh, focuses on uh, you know a common man being oppressed by the royalty or being denied what is his due or her due but in a very refreshing contrast badri is quite the hero of his story uh, you know the way he depicted depicted him saving another minor from an accident at hastinapura and you know oh, am i giving out spoilers i hope not uh oh, oh, have we lost him have we uh, gautam ji uh, sorry sorry gautam ji are you online yes i'm back can you see me i'm back yes 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 so uh, sorry. <laughs> sorry so what made you bring about this uh, very refreshing change in the subaltern uh, narrative because each of your characters not just badri i observed that rishi kedar and uh, the rebel uh, leader janaki right so each of them have their own uh, proud lives to lead rather than you know uh, than helplessly complaining against the royalty they have their own very proud lives to lead and they're proud of what they do so what made you uh, think of this very refreshing change yeah so like i said enough people have written about arjun and uh, krishna and uh, duryodhan and dronacharya and so on abhimanyu enough people have written about this it is these common people it is like suppose 100 years from now or even 1000 years from now if somebody were to write a story about india the story wouldn't be about narendra modi or rahul gandhi the story would be about sai swarupa or hari ji or me the average people who lived during this time but who intersected with the politics of the day with the nation and so on so like i said i think the the exploration of this the underground how did the average person live what did he do what were his aspirations how did he survive what did he what were his crafts how did he work and so on for instance if you look at the lakheda community there uh, who built the house of lack i have tried to create an entire ecosystem where uh, the, the skilled craftsmen are brought and how they work what their fears are how they how skilled they are and so necessary to the project from purochan's point of view and so on likewise in each book i'm going to be exploring india uh, but not through the eyes of the kings and the queens but from the eyes of the ground in, in fact in this book i have gone underground uh, i have uh, examined india through its geology and r- rather than through its simple topography <laughs> okay so uh, now that you mentioned purochan uh, i remember the way you uh, brought out his character we, we hate him we fear him at the same time we connect to him and uh, the moment he dies i couldn't help feeling bad for him so uh, tell us about charting the character of purochan so uh, in terms of any character including porochan who was also dismissed in about you know, five six lines he was only a character who was supposed to be the evil porochan will dis- will kill the pandavas and so on and so forth but what i found was in the process of uh, writing uh, and in the spirit of the mahabharat which i think is the if there is one perfect shade of gray in this world it is the mahabharat there is no black there is no white there is only gray and mahabharat symbolizes symbolizes it it signifies it it tells it it shows the characters in in an absolute gray form that grayness began to come inside me as i was writing the story and purochan's character began to develop from there yes from the outside he seems like a very bad person evil um, ambitious cruel and so on but as you go deeper and deeper into his character you begin to see that there are only the outer fault lines beneath which there is a human being like anybody else and if you look around yourselves even your worst enemy you will find shades of goodness in him and the best person the person you love most will have shades of black in him it is this grayness that the mahabharat tells you and which i sort of imbibed all through the way in fact if you notice even badri isn't pure white there is a grayness in badri also it is this gray that you see in purochan in fact when purochan died i cried oh yeah i was close to tears also uh, so 
Yeah, and uh, yes, before uh, we go to the next question, I'm really curious to know about what you are writing right now. And uh, after knowing that you are halfway through, I'm even more curious. Yeah, but unfortunately, your curiosity will have to wait because uh, I'm not going to tell you what I'm going to be writing. However, there are two books that I'm currently working on. One is, of course, the Mahabharat Reimagined, which I have written half. And I'm now wondering whether I should go ahead with it or do I need to change it and so on and so forth. That, 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 that Kurukshetra is going on in my head. And the other is a simple way, economics book. Um, there's nothing to, no rocket science to it. Uh, just but discovering India through our, through our economics. Okay, still economics is a rocket science for most of us. So we'll <laughs> wait for your book to come out. But one thing I can tell you, if you liked Tunnel of Varanavat, you will love this second book. Yeah. So uh, can I take the opportunity to tell everyone here, please uh, get yourself a copy of Tunnel of Varanavat. You'll be in for a treat. You'll know a lot of Mahabharata that you would not have imagined or experienced. And uh, that brings me to the my favorite character of the book is uh, Rishi Kedar. Uh, is, that, is there an inspiration or uh, did something inspire you about you know, re uh, imagining the whole ashram of Rishi Kedar? Because uh, he seems to me as a spiritually exalted person as well as somebody who is abreast of the political situation and he's not he's not really the inactive person the inactive rishi per se he is in a way masterminding the political situation as well as trying to take control of things before uh, without overreaching right uh, and doesn't that seem like a contrast i mean it seemed like a refreshing contrast to me but I'd like to know more from uh, you. Okay, so uh, in my opinion, it's not a contrast. I think it's a continuum. If you look at, for instance, Vedvyas himself, he's not only a, a rishi, but he's a participant in, a, in very strange ways. The, both Pandu and Dhritarashtra are his children, so is Vidur. He is constantly there at the most sensitive moments and fixing the story. For instance, when giving moral strength to the fact that Draupadi would wed five uh, Pandavs. He was there to do that. He was there to take the Pandavs and tell them from, to move from Eka Chakra to um, Kampilya to, uh, so that Arjun could marry Draupadi. So Rishis come and go. Dro if you look at Dronacharya, Dronacharya was an active uh, participant in the court of Dhritarashtra. If you look at Kripacharya, if you look at uh, Vashishta, if you look at any big Brahmin of the time, he was not just a, 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 a propounder or a discoverer of knowledge and spiritual and following spiritual issues. He engaged very deeply with all the kings and queens, all the ashrams, all the Gurukul. They were, they were driven by the, these Brahmins. Kedar's ashram is on the same lines, where a whole lot of people, they could be kings, they could be common people, they could be any Kshatriyas, Vaishyas, anybody could come, learn take knowledge and move on. But that doesn't mean he only taught theory. He was very conversant in statecraft. He was a warrior himself. And that is what I tried to bring about. Kedar is a continuum. If you, uh, he, he, there were hundreds of ashrams along all our rivers, Narmada, Yamuna, Ganga, and all these ashrams were led by rishis who were not only just teachers of uh, th uh, political theory, but were participants in it as well. So as uh, uh, you've written non-fiction and uh, you, uh, Tunnel of Varanavat is your first work of fiction? Yes. Yeah. So how did you balance between conveying the message of Mahabharata, which is timeless, which is eternal, and giving it the creative twist, taking the creative liberty, because creative liberty is like oxygen for all of us. That is right. true. So how do you balance between uh, keeping it eternal as well as introducing the new angles? I think the eternality or the timelessness of the Mahabharata uh, is in, in its spirit more than in, in its words or incidents. Um, when I write, I know because I'm 
treading on Vedvyasa's work. You could look at Vedvyasa's um, Mahabharat as the canvas on which I'm painting my own little story between in, in some small chapters here and there. But if you look at the Vedvyasa's Mahabharat and then you examine the characters, what I do is once I know the story, everybody knows this story that the Pandavas were going to be killed by Duryodhan's uh, henchman uh, Purochan in Varnavat. Then the, a miner comes, he digs a tunnel and they escape. Everybody knows this story. There is nothing new to it. I'm not introducing any new twists here and there. But in the course of the writing, when I start creating my characters, the way I do it is I, I imbue a lot of intensity into each of my characters. After a while, the story being sacrosanct, each of the characters within the limitations of the story begins to act on his own or her, on her own. And in no time, these characters they start talking to each other. They devise their own little worlds, their own little universes around which, which keep intersecting with each other, but continue to go in the same direction as the main story, which in this case is from Hastinapur to Varanavat and the saving of the Pandavas. At some point, the characters attain a life of their own. They begin to uh, engage. They begin to fight. They begin to uh, deal with one another in some way. They have their own aspirations. And they get sewn together in this narrative. And in the, uh, they, they, they sort of they get a life of their own. For instance, there was a character I wanted to kill uh, in this book towards the end. And the character just refused to die. So I let it live. That happens and uh, I think that is a sign that they want to assert themselves. And That's right. Although some people say you can rewrite, you can just kill and rewrite. What is the big deal? Technically that's correct. But when you once you enter the spirit of that space, it becomes very difficult to... The character won't die. It's not easy. I, I agree. So, and uh, my next question is maybe from another writer to a writer. Uh, when you selected the story, uh, there are unknown stories where the ending is not known to a lot of people. And you have the advantage of giving that suspense here. But while uh, writing Karnal of Varanavat, everybody pretty much knew what would happen. Right? So, uh, didn't you feel a bit daunted that the how of it, the how of it is, uh, you know, has a lot of pressure than what will happen of it later? So, uh, so, so how did you go about that? What I thought was that there is no Indian that I know who does not know the Mahabharata. Exactly. Every, every, it flows in, in, in the house, in the conversations, in his blood, in his DNA. Mahabharata, we are the Mahabharata. Now, for me to say that there is a surprise at the end that, you know, Pandavas will escape is silly. It is taking my, it is taking my readers for granted. That's not the truth. My readers know. They have read Amarchitra Kathas, if nothing. They know the story already. My story is of Badri, therefore. It is not, there is no suspense about the Pandavas being saved. Now, uh, if you read um, Death of a, Chronicle of a Death Foretold, uh, by Gabriel Garcia Marquez, which I think is his best work ever. It begins with the death of the protagonist. And then the entire story goes on to say what happened and how it happened and why he was killed and who killed him and how, etc, etc, etc. It's a marvelous book. If you haven't read it, you must read it immediately, right after this chat. Could you, could you please uh, yeah, could you was, please repeat the name and the author? Uh, it's called Chronicle of a Death Foretold by Gabriel Garcia Marcos. Okay, sure. And so there are several others, including in the Mahabharata, when the war begins, uh, somewhere in the initial part of the war, they say Bhishma is dead. And then, so how did that happen? Dhritarashtra asks. And then Sanjay then tells the story till the 10th day. So there are these techniques are not new. I just thought that I shouldn't take my own readers for granted. I give them respect. I know they have engaged with the Mahabharata. And, I, and if they haven't, they will. And even then, I believe there was enough tautness in the story. Because the story is not of the Pandavid. The story is of Badri. How he viewed those incidents. And there is enough suspense there, if you know what I mean. 
of course the how of it had a lot of suspense and uh, and uh, so coming to your uh, books on uh, the non fiction books uh, do you have anything to share about uh, the disruptor because i think that was pretty much a hopeful book and uh, two years down the line uh, we are seeing that things haven't turned out the way they have been yeah, projected yeah. and uh, so uh, what i do know about the writing of the disruptor is that it was an honest attempt to capture a phenomena of the time which is that when the aam aadmi began to walk on the streets and demand his democracy arvind kejriwal was able to capture it beautifully evocatively inspiringly and a whole lot of young people and and old who were fed up with the system thought that he would be able to bring the change that he was talking about he would be able to walk the talk after writing the book which is a very uh, it's almost semi academic in its nature there is a whole lot of reportage i have met a whole lot of people but it's also academic in the sense there is political theory there is theory of disruption theory of entrepreneurship political entrepreneurship and so on these are the themes that this book has discussed at the end of which i have also uh, and throughout the book also i have analyzed three not just arvind kejriwal it's also rahul gandhi as well as narendra modi but at the end of the book after it was published i was attacked from both the bjp side all three actually by the bjp they thought i was eulogizing uh, arvind kejriwal by aam aadmi party who thought by calling him a disruptor i was uh, humiliating him and by the congress who said that oh you know this this is a motivated book so now given that all three political parties attacked me publicly visibly abused me and so on and so forth i'm sure there must oh be some God. truth because <laughs> there's something in the book <laughs> uh, it's unfortunate that uh, what was promised by arvind kejriwal hasn't turned out the way it should have it is sad uh, but nonetheless this book stands on its own merit so combining your uh, wisdom drawn from mahabharata is there an advice that uh, you would like to give not just arvind kejriwal but uh, you know any of the civil society aspirant who wants to enter politics i think the first thing which i would like to say any to any indian today who wants to do anything for india in any small way whatever aspect of india which have phase that he is in he may be a thinker he may be a politician he may be an economist he may be a policy maker he may be a teacher worker businessman is to stop copying outside ideas understand the great land that you are a part of and understand the destiny understand the civilizational depth of the land that you stand on the land to which you belong understand it we have been whitewashed i'm sorry i'm sorry gautam ji i'll have to interrupt you uh can i request everyone to mute their microphones a bit because uh, i am afraid it's just causing some disturbance and okay then thank you uh sorry gautam ji please go on i just to anybody any consequence who wants to do anything worthwhile for the country i would first like him to understand the nature of the the civilizational legacy that he is an inheritor of the land that he stands on the richness of its culture and think from there i think we keep thinking in a very stupid manner now if you just examine the political moves uh, the political part of our of our country initially we began to ape the socialist soviet union that failed so we began to ape american capitalism or european capitalism we are that still not, to now china is, china is going now we are saying look china the way china is building its infrastructure where are, where is india i don't think we need to think like this i think india needs to think in the indian way and that is something that knowledge doesn't seem to be there at all in our ecosystem it's not there in our school in our schools i wasn't taught the mahabharat in my school why not why are we ashamed of the mahabharat why is it not taught in colleges what is mythology such a big deal the, the indian sanskrit space i don't understand this i think we have sort of given away we have we have lost the 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 the, the, the battle of ideas 
from a position of strategic strength we have given it all up we have frittered it away i think we need to now pull it back we need to understand the land that we come from the civilizational legacy that we are inheritors of this great country that of to which of which we are citizens i think we need to be take pride in it explore it understand it i'm sure there are weaknesses in our country no country is free of weaknesses but we can't just keep jumping from one one success story to another and keep aping one one country after another earlier it was the ussr then it became america now we are looking at china this is ridiculous india has a great civilizational legacy let's get that first that would be my message to everybody thank you and uh, coming to the word dharma uh, i think uh, the viewers are uh, Uh, aware of the beautiful article uh, written by gautam ji that uh, came on swarajya so gautam ji uh, is dharma because the article seemed to say that dharma is dynamic dharma is ever changing and it also changes from the perspective of each of the person and the role that he or she is playing and it can con dharmas of two people can contrast with each other they evolve with time so is dharma a journey that is unique to everyone absolutely dharma is a journey that that is the correct thing dharma is a journey and it changes not only with changing conditions it changes every moment of your own evolution man too is evolving all the time uh, as a being we are comprised of five parts of course everybody knows that which is the physical body the vital which is emotions and so on the mental which is the power of the mind the psychic which is our soul and the spiritual which is the uh, all pervading spirituality up there we are comprised of those five things and our dharma keeps changing as as we grow as the soul grows we come in the soul comes in comes into this body to grow as we grow our dharma changes dharma is every instant it's at every moment it's a, it's it's like a consciousness it's a conscious being and to be able to be in tune with your own dharma at every point is not an easy task arjun couldn't do it yudhishthir couldn't do it dronacharya couldn't do it it's not easy and yet you need to follow it and that's where that's what the mahabharat teaches us in the in its final analysis that you need to follow your dharma it also says that give up all dharma and come to me as shri krishna says but that's at the level of the metaphysical i am talking about the ethics or even at the story level your dharma uh, as a student is different from your dharma as a wife as a writer you have a, a dharma you have, you have to follow your dharma as a worker you have your a different dharma at different points you have a different dharma with different people so you i think the core of dharma is to be conscious of it all the time at every moment that's what dharma is all about it is not a law that because you are a you need to do xyz dharma is a moment that xyz changes the disrobing of draupadi for instance was a dharma but even bhishma couldn't answer the question whether it was dharma or adharma it took krishna to say that it was wrong draupadi of course suffered it there was a wrongness to the whole issue but the fact is when you when we when when wise people were asked what is this dharma even bhishma could not answer it and i think at that point he lost his dharma so dharma is is the ability to stay conscious at every point to what is demanded of you from the growth of your soul by nobody else it's not an outer thing at all it's an inner thing what does your soul seek to do and therefore what do you, what does your body have to follow that is dharma sure thank you and uh... Shri DV Shridharan from the viewers want to know: uh, Do you read the Mahabharata in Sanskrit or English? If English, what's your favorite version? I read it in English because, unfortunately, that is the language that I was uh, brought up in, and that is my language of expression. Uh, it's an incomplete language. I would like to read it in Sanskrit at some point, but I need to learn that language. Uh, among the Mahabharat that I use, so. there are two things here one is the mahabharat that i use as an academic so i use kisari mohan ganguly's mahabharat and recently uh, vivek debroy's mahabharat has come which is kisari mohan ganguly's mahabharat is a translation of the what is known as the calcutta edition uh, 
Vivek Debroy's translation is of the critical edition. There are subtle differences between the two. Vivek's is a better written, more contemporary work. Kisri Mohan Ganguly's is the oldest and the most prevalent work. These are the books that I use as my academic mapping points. But then there are several other Mahabharats that I have read and enjoyed very much. The last of which was by S.L. Bhairappa called Parva. I think that's an amazing book. Everybody must read it. But equally, you could read K.M. Munshi's uh, Krishnavatar series or Maggie Lidchi Grassi's three-part uh, Mahabharata. She lives in Auroville and it's very highly influenced by sure in those works. Um, apart from that, any Mahabharata that I come in, come, that comes close to me, I don't let it go. I read every Mahabharata. I've read every Mahabharata written in English. So that Mahabharata has that charm. So we yes. just don't want to leave uh, reading any uh, version every that writer, comes out. Every writer engages with this universe in his or her own way. And then it, it, you can partake of that knowledge or partake of that expression in some way or the other. They, it's a delightful story. It's our story. It, it runs in our blood. It, it's there in our genes. Sure. So, uh, viewers, you are uh, free to type out your questions to Gautam ji on the chat window. And uh, Amish ji says Esel Bhairapa's Parva is uh, absolutely stunning in its brilliance. Even, you know, he's one of my favorite writers also. So, uh, there's a question from Sumati. Uh, she says, brilliant Gautam ji. How has Professor Adluri's workshop on the Mahabharata changed your engagement with the epic and uh, yes, and I'd like if I can add something to that. Uh, I have not been able to attend the workshop uh, given where I live. So could you share something about the workshop? Because everybody seems to be talking about it. And I, I, I think even the viewers would like to know what happened in the workshop and what was taught and what you liked about the content. So, uh, so uh, Vishwa Adaluri is the most um, academically he is up there. I've learned so much from every uh, minute of his workshop there. He is he just lives in the Mahabharata, and from him it is from him that I have borrowed this expression of the universe. So it was there inside me all the time. But Adaluri was able to help me articulate it in the right way, which is the Mahabharata is the universe. And the universe is the Mahabharata. The text is the universe and the universe is the text. Now, apart from that, Adluri took us uh, into the depths. Uh, we read one, uh, the first Parva, which is the Adi Parva together. And uh, the layers and layers of Vedic thought, Upanishadic thoughts, interrelationships within the Mahabharata, etc. That, that he was able to bring about were very, very revealing. At the end of the workshop, I thought, I haven't even read the Mahabharata. So that's an adventure which I now need to start reading once again. The key, the key from, from Adluri's workshop was this. Read the Mahabharata. Read it slowly. Read it carefully. And read it again. And which is what now I'm going to do. So far, I've been reading it like a story and enjoying the story. But I believe in every verse or related verse set of verses, there are deep meanings which are hidden, which, are, which go across the Puranas, they go across the Vedas, they go to the Upanishads and across the story itself. In fact, when he says that the Mahabharata is the universe, what he means is that it has all the four Vedas in it already embedded in it. And then it's offered to you. Um, and uh, he also uh, uh, introduced us to this book by uh, Sukthankar on the meaning of the Mahabharata. I strongly recommend everybody should read that book. It's a marvelous book. And uh, what's the title of the book? Uh, on, on the meaning of the Mahabharata. On the meaning of the Mahabharata by Sukthankar. 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 Okay, okay, sure. I think that's a new He's one. The, He's the general editor of the critical edition of the Mahabharata, the translation, where they have gone down right up to the source of the original Mahabharata. 
which is now called the critical edition published by Vandarkar Institute. Sure, sure. Thank you so much for shedding light on the workshop and the learnings that are bound to be useful for everyone. And uh, now as to the young writers who want to explore the civilizational history, basically the whole uh, legacy of 4,000 years of or 5,000 years of past that India has been. So what would be your advice to the writers exploring those ancient worlds and ancient India in particular? Read the Mahabharata. Sure. It has everything. It has everything that you would ever want from India. It has geography. It has history in a way that you have never imagined. It goes into yugas and not just years and centuries and millenniums. It has characters that have several layers and then several more layers beneath them. It talks about dharma. It talks about artha. It talks about kama. It talks about moksha. It puts them all together and offers it to you on a delightful story that you just can't stop reading. Engage with it. Learn from it. There are, by the way, there are 16 Gitas in the Mahabharata. The Bhagavad Gita is only one. Oh. Each Gita has its own nomenclature. Each has its own destiny, its own objective. You will find, the, and each Gita has its own differentials in the layers by which it looks at ethics, it looks, looks at spirituality and so on and so forth. This is a whole new world. It is, as Adluri says, the universe. Read the Mahabharata. You don't need to read anything else. Thank you so much. And uh, I guess I'm going to listen to the advice and start rereading the Mahabharata as soon as I can. And uh, Sumedha Varma Ojha has a question. She's the author of Urnabhi. Uh, she says, a pleasure listening to your ideas, Gautamji. If you have time, could you shed light on the geology of the Ganges river system or suggest books from where we could gather information? Yeah, so I think if you look at the uh, geological surveys of India, you will find enough information there, particularly if you look at the foothills of Shivalik. So uh, for me, the geological surveys of India were was where I understood the geology of India from. Having said that, there is enough literature available in any uh, decent academic library like the IIT or uh, particularly the IITs uh, as far as the engineering path goes because there's a whole lot of geology there. Uh, Delhi University may also have it. But as far as I'm concerned, my, less, my learnings have come from the geological surveys of India. Okay, and uh, do they uh, also have the ancient the knowledge about the ancient system as well as paleology of the rivers? Because uh, I believe uh, GSI is a bit recent. That's what Sumedha Ji says. That is correct. But geology, unlike geography, does not change very much because it is deep inside the earth. Ge geography changes because of the way you build your buildings or when rivers change their rules. But geology, it is underground and that doesn't change very much. Once you are underground, it, it helps you to look a bit overground and imagine the rest of it. The, I, I, I speak as a fictional writer, so I get indications from there and I work, work my way up uh, to the surface of the earth from below. Now, uh, that may or may not be precise, may or may not be correct, but that's how I work. I, geology is a very... If you look at the geological time scales, they are extremely long. Uh, they, are, they are not like our 24 hours and 365 days and so on and so forth. They're not even in terms of lifetimes. They, 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 these epochs are, are of millions of years. That millions of years doesn't change in the geological part. So that is fairly constant and it will, be, it will remain constant for a long time. For instance, the, the move, how, uh, how the Himalayas have risen, you can't capture it, can you? But geology tells you it's there. The Aravalis, for instance, which is the old fold mountains. So you can imagine, you can take this as a starting point and imagine the rest. Sure. Thank you. I learned a lot of 
the importance of geology from uh, this one and uh, uh, Amish ji again uh, thank you Amish ji for participating and uh, he says Gautam in the stories of our culture what role would you say the Mahapuranas and the various versions of Ramayana play in relationship to the Mahabharata every other even other stories uh, story groups such as Hitopadesha, Panchatantra etc. Okay, so uh, Amish, I haven't, I haven't engaged with any other text as deeply as I have with the Mahabharata and I don't think in this lifetime I may even be able to. Having said that, I have a working knowledge of some of the works, particularly the Ramayana. Uh, your Ramayana, which is the Ramchandra series, has changed my outlook of the Ramayana itself. But of course, I wasn't well read. I wasn't conversant with the, with the Ramayana as, as well as you probably are. The fact that Sita could be a warrior is not something that I, would, that I knew or that any many of our readers did. It has only through you. And then you make a very simple thing saying that it is there in Ramayana. And the Ramayana that we talk about in popular culture is the Bhakti Ramayana by Tulsidas. I think at some point bhakti came and stamped on the on the on the victorious on the bravery that the Ramayana had. Before you, there was uh, uh, um, Ashok Banker's Ramayana series, which again is a very adventurous, very uh, very different Ramayana from Tulsi Das's Ramayana. Now there is a Ramayana inside the Mahabharata as well. In the course of uh, their uh, forest wanderings in the one parva, when the Pandavas are going from one place of pilgrimage to another, Yudhishthir asks, who is more unfortunate than I? Uh, he asks Rishi Markande and he is told a story of two people, which is Nala and Damayanti and Ram and Sita. I think the Mahabha Mahabharat has been able to encapsulate most of the work of the previous uh, uh, works like say the Purana or the Ramayana, definitely the Vedas and the Upanishads. I don't know about Hitopadesha. I think they are a later, they, they, uh, chronologically, they were written after the Mahabharata. But having said that, I think in the Mahabharata, as far as the Indian thought goes in terms of Dharma, Karma, Moksha, Artha, spirituality, it's all contained in the Mahabharata. And in fact, if you read you know, Shanti Parva, which is where Bhishma gives his uh, wisdom to uh, Yudhishthir, you will see a whole lot of stuff on governance and laws and how, how a king should govern a, uh, a kingdom and so on and so forth. So uh, I'm unable to answer your question to any great detail, Amish, uh, because I haven't read the Mahabharata as closely as you have. But I do know, I, from the little senses that I get here and there, I would believe that the Mahabharata would contain the essence of all the earlier works Sure, and uh, there are a couple of uh, a couple more questions. Yes, uh, from Amish ji again. Now, uh, sorry, yeah, Aravalis are among the oldest surviving geological features in the world. Are they? No, they are not. Uh, in the south. Uh, I, I don't recollect which range it is, but uh, uh, that place uh, where Shole was shot, where uh, Gabbar Singh and uh, Samba, where the, the, the rock where Samba falls from when he dies uh, towards the end, that rock is one of the oldest uh, geological formations in the world. One of the oldest. Definitely India. I'll, I can give you the precise reference. Uh, I'll need to re read up on the books, but it is not Aravalis. It is that somewhere in South India. I think it's in Karnataka. And uh, that rock where Samba falls from is one of the oldest rock formations in the world. Sure. And uh, DVS sir adds that it is in Ramanagara near Bangalore. Yes, it's en route to Mysore from Bangalore. This town called Ramanagara. That's right, that's right, that's right. You please inform Amish uh, the, the precise location. But you know, if, you sure. have seen, if, you see, if you've seen the movie Shole, you, you know what I'm talking about. 
I know that uh, spot is still a cult spot. You know, you travel in a public transport system, the the conductor or there's someone always pointing to the spot saying, hey, that is the Shole spot. And yeah, yeah. So that's the oldest uh, place, uh, oldest rock formation in India and one of the oldest in the world. Sure. I feel so enriched in my own knowledge. And so uh, thanks, thanks everyone. And uh, Sumedha ji has another uh, query. Uh, her interest for her next book is the underwater caves below Ganges. The mentioned in Sangam literature, I think uh, that's uh, her additional question to asking where she could find the geological details. So any uh, specific uh, info about that, Gautamji? The underwater caves below Ganges. <laughs> No, I don't have any specific uh, information about this. But you please go through the archaeological, uh, the the geological surveys of India, and you will come across uh, most sure, of sure, what you want. It will be sure, there. Sure. The caves sure. may or may not be there, but the geology would definitely be there, and the geology wouldn't have changed from the past oh. two hundred years uh, that the geological surveys were written and now. Okay. Okay. Sure. And another question from Sumati Maharshi. Gautamji, you live in the Mahabharata. You have also lived in the media. So are there similarities? I think there should be and I'm so interested too. Okay, so uh, these are two. When I say that I live in the Mahabharata, it means that I derive my inner strength, my values, my attitudes, my knowledge, my personal knowledge from this text. When I say that I'm in the media, I follow the rules and regulations of what reportage, editing, presentation, graphics, etc. is all about. The two are related to the, to the point that you can do whatever you are, you are doing. You could be a mechanic, you could be an administrator, you could be a politician, doctor or a journalist. But the source from where you, on which you stand, the fundamental strength from which, which drives you or the, the ethical boundaries that you create within you remain, they come from the Mahabharata. It is how you do your work that is important, not the work that you do. You could be a politician and not do any good for the country. And you could be a politician who brings tremendous political change. Both are politicians. Likewise, there are hundreds of journalists and thousands of managers. Each is doing his own Mahabharata. And finally, that Mahabharata is inside us. We derive strength from it. I, derive, I definitely derive strength from it. I go to the Mahabharata every day. I learn from it. And then see what I can do. Not always am I able to uh, follow it. Uh, I have my failings too. And uh, coming back to Mahabharata, I'm reminded of a question which I thought on how. So, uh, am I there? Yes, I can hear Hello? you. Oh, sorry, yeah, I just got an uh, alert on internet. Uh, so, uh, my next question was on the contrasts present in the Maha the contradictions present in the Mahabharata, especially one of my favorite ones these days which I keep pondering about is uh, about the Varna system or, you know, even the outcasting system has been discussed. On one side, you have Karna who is, and Ekalavya who are denied their right to learn what they want to because of uh, their births and uh, or their supposed births. And on the other side, in uh, the later part of Mahabharata, I'm forgetting the chapter, but there is this Rishi who is tested by Indra, uh, you know, whether he is, uh, whether he is qualified enough to, though, to learn Brahmagnana. Uh, so Indra comes in the form of a Chandala and uh, tries to give water to the Rishi and uh, the Rishi denies taking water because he's dirty and he's a Chandala. And Indra says he is not qualified for Brahmagnana mm -hmm. because he differentiates based on birth. 
how can one text have these kind of contradictions and uh, you know it's uh, what's your take on the contradictions on mahabharat i think uh, there is something that we all imagine and uh, aspire that it should be there in the past something called the perfect society that perfect society has never existed in my opinion i don't think that perfect society will ever exist not in the foreseeable generational lifetimes that we can see now is an imperfect society an institution of the varna system i think that is the correct question is the varna system institutionalizing the corruption of society into haves and have nots or putting a certain uh, group of people as lower and another as higher no that is not true i think the varna system is has nothing to do with birth at all and i think amish's book has uh, uh, explored this into great uh, detail and you must read those books my personal view is the following the 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 varna system by birth is a corruption of the varna system in its essence in its essence the varna system is based on your swadharma it is who you are the traits the qualities that you are born with so you could be a thinker born in born in a uh, shudra household and you have the same right authority to come and learn and partake and partake of and create the vedas vedvyas for instance is a daughter of a fisher is a son of a fisher woman there are several such other example dronacharya we, we don't even know where he came from uh, he sorry not the one the kripacharya and kripi they were found in some uh, what is known as a, a matka a, a pot somewhere i don't think it is true that the rigidity of the caste system that we see today was institutionalized by the texts of of our past i don't think so i think that is a corruption in the mahabharat when you see that corruption it means that corruption had begun and i have hinted about it in tunnel of varnavat as as well but to say that corruption is what the institution stands for is incorrect the institution has no such thing it is based on swadharma the corruption is man's failings personal ambitions control which is there in every society across time and space it is a blemish we need to clean it we need to clear it up it's a constant fight we need to fight this fight make this good fight but it is not an institution of dharma that misunderstanding needs to be removed thank you so much and uh, yes this Again, Amishji, asking you what when your next book is coming out and what will it be about? We are all eagerly waiting. Wow! Thank you, Amish. Um, my next book. There are two books I'm working on. One is a fiction in the Bharat Reimagined series, and the other is a non-fiction. Now, both of them are. Hoping you will share the details, some details about. Uh, no, all I can tell you is that it is in the Mahabharat series. but unlike let us say the series that amish is writing where it is ramayana and he is going to take us to ravan and so on and so forth in his next book my books are not chronological i am taking slivers of uh, incidents from the mahabharat and tying them up into a cohesive story which maybe 10 or 15 years from now may end up as the complete mahabharat right now i'm just uh, enjoying the the way the subaltern people looked at the mahabharat or the people of the time the kings and the queens what their lives were what their worlds were etc and exploring them i'll be taking small incidents the next one all i can promise you is that if you liked tunnel of varnavat you will love the next one and as far as the non fiction goes simple simple economics story a book on economics so whichever i finish first will get published first mahabharata one please <laughs> thank you so, thank you so uh, i think we are reaching the end of our session so if anybody else has any questions maybe we'll have time for one or two questions
Max and uh, this is from Shrikant uh, who says not sure if this is related to the discussion but want to ask any take on ASI saying that Taj Mahal is a tomb and not a Shiv temple is there a point that it is Tejo Mahalaya I think it's an ambiguity that has been exploited by all the storytellers uh, that who are exploring this I don't know enough. I, sure. I haven't explored either the time, which is sure. the the Mughal king, Mughal kingdoms, or the space, which is Agra. So I I, I don't know, but uh, I think there is enough. You must guard yourself against uh, the politics of literature that is going on right now. So uh, my suggestion to anybody for any question whatsoever is to go as deep and as far into the source as possible. Sometimes it is not possible and then you need to use your logic, imagination and so on. But don't get swayed by what politicians are saying, what leaders are saying. I would say, I would suggest go to the sources. I would, I sometimes even suspect academics, but that's my problem, not a general problem. I think I, I prefer to do my own research. And this is a, this is an area that I have not researched yet. Sure. Thanks a lot. I think that has been a wonderful session. A lot of very good questions from the viewers and uh, enlightening answers from you, Gautamji. So if uh, I guess, I guess that's, that's all from the viewers from now also. And thank you so much uh, for the opportunity. I've learned a lot from you and waiting for your next books. And uh, thank you. Yes, thank everybody. you everybody for participating in this. I am in your gratitude. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Endic Chat is a weekly program uh, that highlights the, the works of Indic writers. Uh, please make sure you join us back uh, on 7 p.m. next Sunday. Uh, the speaker is going to be Deepika Ahlavat, author of uh, Maya's Revenge. So hope to see you all in uh, her talk also. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. Namaste.